You are listening to the Regent College Podcast. Hello, I'm Nick Corbin. I'm Claire Perini. And welcome back to the Regent College Podcast. <laughs> welcome back, friends. Uh I wish you could have just heard what happened between Nick and I just now. Oh. We're, we're, we're really trying to get nail these intros, but Octavio's, you know, long intro <laughs> is just its messing with us, needing to, you know, do it with yes. Nick and I figuring it out. Um, friends, you are in for a treat yes. of the Hebrews variety. Mm. So we, Nick and I have just had a conversation with Dr. George Guthrie about the book of Hebrews, about all manner of things, about the Christology in Hebrews and about the unpardonable sin, mm. about milk and solid food, yeah. uh, about what else did we talk about, Nick? All sorts yeah, of things. I mean, the Christology, Christ being high and exalted and lifted up above angels, above everything, the creator, and Dr. Guthrie said that, you know, the Terminator, I can't do a very good uh, Terminator <laughs> exit, but, and then also the incarnation and the humanity of Christ. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we touched on the high priesthood and, and uh, how he, he is the, the high priest, the one who, who is both the high priest and the offering and Hebrews touches on all this. And, mm. uh, and then, we, yeah, we talked about also the significance of it for, for the church today as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was, it was so enjoyable. There's so much we could have covered still and gone in depth, but Dr. We've Guthrie, got, he did a wonderful yeah. job. He's yeah. Many, there's many more podcasts that could be had. Yeah. So, and so George has been in the book of Hebrews. What did he say? 30 years or something. He's been teaching and years. researching and kind of investing his life in sort of trying to understand it well. So you're, you're in good hands to kind of hear his thoughts on it. He also talks about a a little, um, a tussle that he had with some other New Testament scholars around a certain verse. So, you know, hold on to that part. His word picture there, I think was really good as a pastoral (laughs) moment too. So I really appreciated it. Keep listening for that. So if you don't know George, you haven't listened to him or you haven't on any of our other podcasts or come across him before. Uh, George is the professor of New Testament here at Regent and a highly sought after lecturer across Mm. North America as well as in East Asia, the UK, Germany, South Africa and Israel. He came to Regent in 2018, but before that he was at Union University in Jackson, Tennessee. And George just has a passion for equipping church leaders and lay people to read the Bible more effectively. And lots of his books and his commentaries and even the things that he's kind of working on as he goes on a research leave is is to that end. He wants people to be able to understand the Bible and understand it well and be able to use it and kind of apply it into everyday life. So George is, it it got technical there, but George is so clear and easy to understand. So friends, we hope you enjoy our conversation with Dr. George Guthrie. George Guthrie, welcome back to the Regent College podcast. Oh, it's always excited to be with you, Claire. Oh, it's good. You're uh, you're Australian's pretty good on my name. I definitely, it's definitely got better over the last few. That's years. That's the only it's... word I speak in Australian. So, that's <laughs> oh, great, George. I got to say, you were one of actually the first uh, people here at Regent that I wanted to invite on the podcast, um, partly because when I was going through the Book of Hebrews personally on my own, I was gifted by my wife, your Hebrews commentary. And it's the first, the first commentary that, uh, I've ever, ever owned. And so I've really been thankful for it. My pastor actually recommended 
it to me and it's been uh yeah it's been really good man so, you just you. made my whole week yeah <laughs> that was fantastic i mean your, yeah. your wife is a wonderfully discerning person yeah <laughs> yes yeah. no yes. that's awesome that is yeah, awesome yeah. well i'm, yeah. I'm uh, so glad to know that nick thanks yeah yeah definitely um so we so as nick said we're going to talk about the the book of Hebrews and you know, you know a little bit about that. So we figured you're a good person for us to, you know. Well, it's, you know, it's interesting. I uh, have been studying Hebrews for, oh, 35 plus years now. Wow. And I'm as excited about the book today as Come I on. have ever been. I really yes. am. I, I just uh, finished teaching uh, the Christology of Hebrews and mm-hmm. a spring course. And um, I have just been talking about Hebrews over the last few days about a ministry context situation. So I'm still passionate about this book. I think yeah. it has so much relevance for life in the modern world and in the church. Ah, Let's dive in. Yeah. So you, in the beginning of your commentary, you actually wrote this beautiful fictional piece and to kind of set the stage for the book of Hebrews. And so I'd love for you to comment on that. And in light of that fictional piece, what what is kind of the overall purpose of the book of Hebrews and and also, who is it being written to? Yeah, uh, you know, early on when I was working on that commentary, the, the NIV application commentary on Hebrews really um, was trying to do good exegesis, but then think through the process of hermeneutics, of bridging to the modern world, and then specific application. Uh, so it was kind of a balanced approach to things. But I wanted right from the very beginning for readers to get drawn into the fact that Hebrews is not just kind of a theoretical tome. You know, Mm. uh, we come to a book like Hebrews, which is complex. It's theologically rich. Um, There's so much about it that uh, is intimidating for modern people because it's kind of hard to figure out what's going on structurally and all of that. And Mm -hmm. um, the Christology is a high Christology, you know, so uh, I wanted people to come to grips with the fact that this was a pastoral document. Yeah. That it was dealing with real people, real life situations mm. and crises uh, in the first century. And so what I did is I, I crafted that piece to kind of pull people into the experience that mm-hmm. Hebrews was trying to address. And I've, mm-hmm. I've actually done that with each one of my commentaries. My Second Corinthians commentary, I did the same thing. And I actually have a commentary on Philippians that should come out next year that uh, I did the same thing. I I kind of did a bit of fictional historical fiction uh, based around Euodia and Syntyche and their relationship Mm -hmm. in Philippi, but to draw people in, to get them on the street and get a sense that these were real uh, people who were, who were struggling with things. And the book was addressing those issues in a very uh, wonderful way. So, mm-hmm. so you asked the question of uh, what's, what's Hebrews trying to accomplish? And my short answer to that would be, it is trying to help people endure in the faith by giving them a very clear picture of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished on our behalf. Mm-hmm. So uh, what it was doing is it was addressing um, people who I think were in a situation of persecution who had a lot of pressures being applied to them from the broader culture. And uh, Hebrews is saying, here are some foundation stones to stand on when you're facing the winds of your time. And uh, you're kind of, you know, struggling with being knocked off course from, um, 
following Christ in the world. And, um, and this clearer picture of Jesus will, will help you with that. The, the flip side of that coin is that if we, if we become fuzzy in our thinking about the identity of Jesus or about the nature of the gospel, it's going to be very hard for us to hang in there in the faith. Mm. Mm-hmm. George, you talked about this whole idea of a high Christology, and I feel like you hear that kind of in theological and in biblical studies. What do you, what do you mean by that? Like what, what would be a high Christology? What would be a low Christology? Talk, just, can you just explain that for us? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So is there a low uh, this, is, this is kind of an oversimplification, but mm-hmm. a low Christology would be one that so emphasizes the humanity of Jesus right. that it kind of explains away uh, the deity of Christ. A high Christology would be one that that is really tapping into all of the aspects of Jesus's person and his mm. uh, his deity and and his humanity. Mm. But it would see the exalted Christ as sharing in the identity of God the Father and um, as sharing in the identity of God. So you know, a real strong Trinitarian kind of approach mm. to things, uh, but would would very much see the exalted Christ as as God and as Lord right. of the universe. And I think Hebrews is so rich in that way because right off the bat, um, the son is celebrated as not only the creator of all things, but also the one who is sustaining things through history mm-hmm. and who will be the terminator at the mm-hmm. end of the age. You know, <laughs> he'll be the one that not only created all things, but he will he will terminate all things at mm-hmm. the end of the age. Wrap them up, Hebrews 1, uh, 10 through 12 says, like an old garment. So you think about, a, um, you know, an old sweatshirt that I have that's fa- beginning to fall apart because mm-hmm. I love it and I wear it all the time. And my wife sneaks into my closet and bundles that up and packs it away in a box to get rid of it, you know, <laughs> without you uh, know. <laughs> because she loves me. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. But <laughs> that's what Hebrew says Jesus is going to do at the end of the age. He's going to be the one that takes what we know of as the created order, and he is going to pack it away. It's not eternal. He is. But the uh, created order will be packed away at the end of the age. So when mm. you start thinking about Jesus as the one who spoke in all of the vast, vast reaches of the universe, 20 billion light years from where we are now. Mm-hmm. That Jesus spoke and all of that came into existence. Uh, you start getting a sense of high Christology, mm-hmm. of, yeah. you know, a very high esteem for the identity of Christ. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's and, helpful. I mean, at the beginning of Hebrews, it the author seems to have this, I don't, I don't know, he talks a lot about angels. So is there a, a, a tie-in here between Jesus's high Christology and why the author brings in these angels? Yeah, sure. Uh, so in chapter one, what you have is the first four verses are an introduction to the book. And that introduction culminates by saying that when Jesus was exalted to the right hand, he became as much better than the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Mm. And the name that he's talking about there, the, the word in Greek is anima. And, you know, there's debate about, well, what was the name? But the name itself, that word could be a reference to God. Uh, anima could be the rank or the status. But, but however you understand that specific word, what's going on there is that uh, in Jesus's exaltation to the highest place in the universe, 
he spatially then is over the angels. So Hebrews is going to play off of the language of Psalm 8, that human beings are a little lower than the angels. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and so we, we can talk about that in just a minute. But in chapter 1 specifically, he's really focusing on the enthronement of Christ. So in 1, 5 through 14, you have this whole string of Old Testament passages. All of them, in one way or another, are related, are related to enthronement language. And uh, there have been people like George Buchanan and other scholars who have said, mm. well, maybe the people were kind of falling into worshiping angels. Maybe that was the problem going on. But I don't think at all that that's what was happening. What he's actually doing is he's setting up a rabbinic argument, uh, an argument that the rabbis would use that was called an argument from lesser to greater. And so let me explain how this works. Mm -hmm. So chapter one, you get to the end after all of these amazing passages about the superiority of Christ. He's superior because of his unique relationship to the father. He's superior because the angels, you know, they go out and they do stuff for God and they, but they worship the son. Uh, So he's distinct from them in that he is the creator of all things. He's the one enthroned over the universe. And then he, he is the one who has sat down at the right hand of the father in one thirteen. And so you get to the end of that first chapter, and everybody in the room is shaking their head going, mm-hmm. okay, I got it. Jesus got it. is greater. Yeah. He is greater right. than the angels. And then with chapter two, verses one through four, which is the first warning in the book, the author in essence says this, hey guys, you remember in the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, uh, the Old, Te- Old Covenant scriptures, you remember what happened to people who turned away from the covenant uh, turned away from the law that was given through angels. And what he has in mind there is, is uh, Sinai. And when God gave Moses uh, the law on Sinai, all of the storm that was taking place, Jewish theologians interpreted part of what was going on in the storm was that was a manifestation of angelic beings. Mm. And so the idea was that in the old covenant, you know, the angels were primary mediators of, of God's revelation. And so the author says, in essence, this, you remember what happened to people who turned away from the old covenant revelation that came in relation to these angelic beings, bad news. I mean, Mm. you know, Mm. terrible, Mm. terrible punishment. How much greater how much greater punishment do we deserve if we turn away from the superior word of salvation given through the superior son? So in this argument, the lesser situation is the old covenant. The greater situation is the kind of the the pinnacle of revelation through the son and the, the salvation that he has brought and communicated. And the author is saying, if you respect the angelic beings, which you should, and respect the uh, revelation of the old covenant, which you should. I mean, the author is mm. going to use that revelation throughout his book to as an authoritative base. Mm. That how much greater respect and how much more attention should we give to the word of salvation that came through Jesus? So, do you see kind of the move there? Mm. It's an argument from uh, the lesser situation, which is the old covenant revelation, to the greater situation, saying that if we were serious about what was delivered through the angels, we ought to be even more serious more focused on the word of salvation that came through the, to, through the superior son. Mm. So I think that's, that's the role of the angels. The, the angels are a reference point. Uh, he's not downplaying the importance of the angels. He's building on it. Mm. And to say that if you, if you respect angelic beings, you ought to have much greater respect for the son of God himself and take the word of salvation that 
originated with him. He was the first proclaimer of the gospel. Um, take it really seriously. Mm-hmm. It, this, is, this is tangent. Then with Psalm 8, like how does that, does that logic still sort of apply then as well? That So like how do we understand it? So when, when he's saying, is he talking about Jesus being a little lower than the angels or he's actually talking about human beings being yeah, lower than the angels? Oh, like that's, that's, that's no, always that. <laughs> and I hope people have their Bibles out in front of them because it's kind of hard <laughs> to follow. This is, this is kind of, you know, more advanced stuff in some ways, uh, hard to follow. But here's what's going on there. So uh, chapter one, Jesus is greater than the angels, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's, that's the first step. Um, what's going to happen in chapter two, verses 10 through 18 is incarnation. So chapter one is exaltation. Mm. Chapter two, verses 10 through 18 is going to be about the incarnation. And the basic idea there is that Jesus, the son, had to become incarnate to die. Think about it. If Jesus mm-hmm. had not been human, he would not have been able to die. Right. And he would not, would not have been able to accomplish his high priesthood, which we'll talk about in a minute, right? So to get to incarnation, Claire, what he does in chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. So you have the warning in chapter 2, verses 1 uh, through 4. In 2, 5 through 9, you have that quote of Psalm 8. Mm. What is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you give thought to him? You've made mm-hmm. him a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You put all things under his feet. Mm-hmm. And you ask, is this, is this um, speaking about human beings or is mm-hmm. it speaking about Jesus? Mm-hmm. And my answer is yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. I was going to yes. say, I bet yeah. you're going to say, <laughs> yeah. and my answer you is know that's, yes. You know that I love that answer. <laughs> Such a- yeah. Uh, and and here's, here's what I mean by that, uh, because people do debate, is this anthropological or Christological? The answer yeah. is absolutely. Mm. Yes, yeah. <laughs> it it's both. Uh, because what the author is doing is he is presenting Jesus as the preeminent human being. Mm. Jesus is the preeminent human being. He is the first human being who is actually able to fulfill the creation mandate. Mm which Psalm 8 is commenting on. Psalm 8 is a reflection in its original context is a reflection on the creation account and the creation of human beings. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's really interesting. If you go back and you look at in the second temple period, you look at the Jewish commentary on Psalm 8, it's mostly angelic beings and others uh, using Psalm 8 to say, uh, God, what are human beings? In other words, God, what were you thinking? Mm-hmm. You created mm-hmm. these things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of saying, you know, human beings are kind of a mess, which is often true. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but, but actually, this is a celebration of Psalm 8 and Christ being the human being who was able to ultimately fulfill it, mm-hmm. where he is fulfilling what Adam and Eve dropped the ball with. Mm-hmm. As, uh, you know, the um, king and queen of creation, if you will. So Christ in his exaltation is human. Right. Christ right. is still human. Let's wow. remember that. He's still in his resurrection human body. Even though he's completely God, he's also still completely human now. Right. It's hard to get our head around that. So totally. <laughs> yeah. But, but that means that he is fulfilling yeah. that role as the human being, the second Adam, mm. who is therefore able to carry out that. So, so here's why Psalm 8 works as a transition. It has both elements of 
right. incarnation and exaltation. Yeah. You have made him a little while lower than the angels. That's the incarnation. Wow. You have crowned him crowned with glory him. and honor. That's the exaltation. Mm. Wow. So this passage then makes a beautiful transition from talking about the exaltation in chapter one to the incarnation in chapter two, verses 10 through 18. It's just, mm -hmm. it's just beautiful, mm. beautiful transition. Totally. It's like oh. a hinge. It's like, yeah. A hinge. yeah. Uh -huh. So we, we going through the exaltation, then the incarnation, you kind of touched on it already, but Hebrews also talks about this, the, the high priesthood yeah. uh, in the order of Melchizedek. And I, I'm just wondering, it's also very graphic in how it describes it, because it talks about the blood and the sprinkling of the blood and the blood on everything. Yeah. And so I wonder if you could just touch on that a little bit. And as part of like the old covenant, moving into the new, the new covenant as well. Okay, so you want me to do chapters three through ten? Yeah, yeah, all of it. In, in, in like uh, you know, like yeah, just a few minutes. A few okay, minutes, well, yeah. let me let me give you the the what I would call the straight skinny on it, right? The the short answer, and then uh, <laughs> and then we'll kind of go from there. What is it? Is that a southern that one? That is, it is totally southern. I love it, Claire. This is all your fault, Claire. You just inspire this kind of uh, winsome conversation. So. Uh, <laughs> But here's the thing. Okay, so we've, we've gone from exaltation to incarnation. And I said that the reason why Jesus had to become human was to die, mm. right? So mm. uh, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters mm. in order to take us to glory. He had to become like us. And uh, chapter 2, verses 10 through 18 is all about solidarity. It's all about his solidarity with us. Uh, mm. In chapter 2, let me just kind of read the passage here. So in chapter 2... Um, he says, uh, for in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God for whom and through whom all things exist should make the source of their salvation perfect through sufferings. So sufferings were foundational to the ministry of Jesus to get us back into the presence of the Father in a new way, in a new covenant kind of way. And he goes on and he says, uh, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these so that through his death, he might destroy the one who had the power of death. That is the devil. All right. Hmm. So he's saying that there's something about suffering as a human being that became foundational for the priestly ministry of Christ. And hmm. what the author is going to do is he's going to play off of that idea and as he moves into the great center section of the book, which begins in 414, he's going to say that the normal process, if you look at the revelation of the Jewish scriptures, is that high priests were taken from among people mm -hmm. because they mm -hmm. could sympathize with their weaknesses. Mm -hmm. And so Jesus was had become lower. He is taken from among people and appointed as a high priest. Yeah. And that's going to be uh, chapter 5, 1 through seven twenty-eight. It's all about how Jesus' appointment as high priest um, is significant because whereas the earthly priest got appointed because who their parents were, they were Levi, Levit from the tribe of Levi. Jesus is appointed because God has declared him a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, according to Psalm 4 Mm-hmm. You are a priest. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. 
So that's going to be chapters five. Uh, and then he's going to real briefly kind of turn to exhortation in chapter six to kind of confront the hearers with their immaturity. And then he's going to go back to Melchizedek in chapter seven. But it culminates at the end of chapter seven with we have this kind of high priest, one who um, is holy, who has been exalted above the heavens. Mm -hmm. So you have this idea that Jesus is a unique high priest. He's different from the earthly priest. And therefore, he needs a different kind of offering. Mm. And that's chapters 8 through 10, 18. Um, that's a new covenant offering. It's an offering that's, that he was taking right into the heavenly realm. And so here's, here's the big picture difference. Jesus is a different kind of priest because he's a priest forever. Mm. He's never going to die on you. He always lives to make intercession. And that gives us a tremendous amount of stability and security. Yeah. But then he has a superior offering because he's not killing an animal. He is submitting himself to death. Mm -hmm. So he's both the high priest and the high priest sacrifice in one. Yeah. And because he is the sacrifice, um, then his blood is able to uh, cleanse us for all time. It's a mm -hmm. decisive forgiveness for sins. Once and for all, it doesn't have to be made over and over and over and over again. It made, was made one time so that if you're in the new covenant, everything you've ever done and everything you ever will do has been dealt with decisively by the sacrifice of Jesus. Mm. It, it, it's, it's something where forgiveness is decisive. It's, it's forever if you really are a member of the new covenant. And uh, and that's what sets it apart is different. It's able to cleanse the conscience, not that we never feel guilty for sin. You know, again, it, it's not saying that. It's saying that it takes away the barrier in our relationship with God. We never have a sense that we can't enter into the presence of God again because mm -hmm. Jesus has so decisively dealt with the problem of sin. Mm -hmm. And when you get when when you get a hold of that, yeah. I mean, when you really get your head around how decisive the forgiveness is, it will change you. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it's very powerful. Mm -hmm. Except in chapter 6, verse 4, yeah. there's the unpardonable sin. Yeah. So what's what's going on? Like what's what's going on there? And then how do we how do we think about that pastorally? Oh gosh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um Oh it's my like there's goodness. all this forgiveness. Okay. There's all yeah. this cleansing, but then me, wait, there is this unpardonable sin. So let me tell you, let me tell you the challenge of yeah. dealing with the passage before I tell you the, the real brief explanation of where yeah. I'm coming from. Totally. Okay. Yeah. The challenge is there have been about seven different positions on what that passage means. Mm. Uh, I remember at a time, this was years ago when I was first starting out in teaching. I was in San Francisco for a, a Society of Biblical Literature meeting, and uh, Grant Osborne and Craig Blomberg. And Scott McKnight and I had gone out to go shopping for our families. And we started getting into a conversation about Hebrews 6 and the apostasy passage in Hebrews 6, 4 through 8. And we were arguing about it. And there were about three different positions represented wow. uh, between us at that right. time. And we all got onto a trolley. And we were in the trolley was packed. So we were standing, hanging on to the four to the four corners of the trolley, arguing about this yes. passage over the head of all these innocent people sitting there listening right. to us have this right. conversation. Okay. And, and that's kind of a that's kind of a word picture of how this yeah. normally happens in the church. You know, it's all right. about this big theological discussion. 
But here's the thing, um, and, and this, this is basically what I would say, that the author Hebrews is dealing with a very, very serious pastoral situation. And here's the situation he's dealing with. He's dealing with people who are abandoning the church, who are turning their back on Christ, because I think because persecution is on the rise, you have people who are, are literally walking away, and there are people who have one foot out the door. And so what he's trying to do is to confront those people with the seriousness of falling away from God. Mm. And, the, and the words that he uses in that passage are actually words right out of the wilderness wandering passages in the Old Testament. There's a guy named Dave Mathewson who um, has written a very, very good article where, for instance, he would say that when it says that they have tasted the heavenly gift. What does that bring to mind from the Old Testament wilderness wanderings? Well, the, the manna. The manna, yeah. The manna, yeah, that's right. Uh, they have been enlightened. Think about the pillar of fire leading them through the wilderness. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, you have this language that basically the author is using this rich Old Testament language to say it is a profoundly serious thing. If you turn your back on Christ's people and and join those who are standing over against the cross saying to Jesus, you're just a Jewish guy dying on a cross. You have nothing to do with me. Mm. Uh, in chapter 10, the language is, is very graphic. It says that these people who have abandoned Christ are trampling Jesus under their feet mm. and treating his blood as if it is koinon, which means common. Um, not fit for sacrifice. So these are people who are saying to Jesus, your blood that's being shed on the cross has nothing to do with my sins. That's, that's very intense. Yeah. Well, and that that whole idea that that your blood is common, like that, just even you saying that kind of that, that idea of common. Yeah. That it's just, therefore it's nothing. It is, it's not exalted. It's not exalted. It's It's just not exalted. It's and even worse than that, it's not even like it's just normal blood. That word common was used to describe a sacrifice in the Old Testament that wasn't fit for sacrifice. Right. Oh, yeah. man. Wow. So, so that, that is graphic language. So, so the author is rhetorically powerful in what he's doing, but it's not just kind of a theoretical rhetorical thing. He's dealing with a real pastoral situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, my, my short answer is, I think, and there, there are people who disagree with this, uh, but but um, I'm going to tell you the short answer, then I'm going to tell you what I think we do with this pastorally, because I have had to deal with this passage pastorally mm. over and over and over again through the years. Um, but my, my idea is that what is going on here is he's dealing with people who have been involved in the Christian community. They've been around the work of God. Uh, they've seen the work of the Spirit of God. They've heard the Word of God, all of these kind of things. And yet they've come to a place where they've concluded this has nothing to do with me. I'm out of here. Mm-hmm. And, and I think what the author would say is that they, however you read it, they are manifesting something that is terrifying about their spiritual condition. Right. Uh, an Armenian person like Scott McKnight is a, is a friend of mine. And Scott would say they had salvation and they lost it. I would say that they never added faith to their hearing of the word of God, which is a description he gives in chapter four, verses one and two. Mm. They, they, they may have looked like Christians, smelled like Christians, all of that kind of thing. But if they can come to this point, they are manifesting. It's kind of first John's idea of they went out from us because they were not of us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that's, 
you know, that's hard to understand, you yes. know, when you see people who've been really, really involved in church. But here's the point. Whether McKnight's right or I'm right theologically on that, the person that we're talking about is in deep yogurt. I mean, you know, it's it's spiritually they're in a bad, mm-hmm. bad place, bad, mm-hmm. bad place. Mm-hmm. And they need to believe the gospel. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so here's here's what happens in pastoral ministry. And then, you know, help me because this is you know, this is uh, can be kind of involved. But here here the the let me just start with the people who I get emails from over and over again from around the world. And they're normally saying something like this. I'm afraid that I've committed the unpardonable sin. Can yes. you tell me, can you help me understand if mm. what I have done, because I really want to, I want to be Jesus's person, but uh, you know, I feel like maybe, maybe it's impossible for me to come back because I had a time in my life that I was mm. you know, away from God and all that kind of thing. And what I normally will say to that person, I'll, I'll talk to them. I'll say now, okay, so who is your hope in for the gospel? Oh, it's, mm. oh, it's in Christ alone. I mean, I know I can't, earn it myself, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I'll talk them through things. And I'll say, so you really do want to be a follower of Jesus. You're passionate about that. Um, and, and they'll say, oh, yes, absolutely. And I said, well, Hebrews 6 is not talking about you. Yeah. Mm, right. Because Hebrews 6 is talking about people who have turned their back on Christ in the church and have said, I'm out of here. I have nothing to do with this. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to. Um, so I'm, I would say to that person, trust the gospel, trust Christ, trust Christ, believe the gospel. And and rest. Don't try to go back to an experience you had years ago. Uh, you have a heart for Christ and the gospel and the church, mm-hmm. and and rest and trust trust Him. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I come out of a conversionist tradition in my past, which there's some positive things about that. I mean, I was taught to seek God, to expect that God move in my life. Mm. Uh, I was taught to. Uh, take very seriously the call of the gospel on my life personally. All those things are really important that I got. Mm. But at times, the downside or, or a, a misapplication of that tradition can be when somebody is told, well, as long as you've converted at some point in your life, you're okay. Mm. Now, the way it was stated in my context was once saved, always saved. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I would I would want to add to that once saved always saved if saved right <laughs> right uh, you know that that kind of idea um, mm. so so I have seen people who sometime in their past had a religious experience but they are living like the devil they don't care mm. uh, you know there was a guy uh, one of my students years ago when I was teaching at Union University who was living like the devil he didn't care about these things. He was finishing a Christian studies degree because that's what he started in, right? Mm. And I looked him in the face and I said, you know, it may well be that you're manifesting that you do know you do not know Christ mm. and you are on your way to judgment. Mm. And uh, you know, I can't look into a person's heart. Mm. And that's part of the deal that Hebrews that, that's that's not often factored in yeah. um, in dealing with these warning passages in Hebrews. I think the author of Hebrews himself gives evidence that he knows that he cannot look into everybody's heart. And he's dealing with a spectrum of mm. where people are coming from spiritually. So sometimes he'll make a very bold statement, who's Christ, whose house you are, and yeah. then mm. he'll qualify it by saying, if you hold fast to the confession right. of your hope. Right. And, and the reason he's doing that is because he does want to give encouragement, but he can't give unqualified assurance mm. because there may be some people in the room who are going to manifest that they don't really know Christ. Right. Mm. And um, so, so anyway, it's, it's a complex, but I think that, that the answer is 
to to uh, preach the gospel to people lovingly and to encourage them to believe and trust Christ in the mm-hmm. gospel. Mm-hmm. Does yeah, that make some really sense? Help. It does. Well, and it makes me think. If you're asking, well, I don't know if this is what you're saying, so correct me if I'm misunderstood. If you're asking the question, have I committed the unpardonable sin? I really don't want to be, I really don't, then you you probably haven't committed the unpardonable sin. Yeah. Yeah. So there's. I yeah. think even when Jesus is dealing with uh, the blasphemy of the spirit, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That he's dealing with people who are so screwed up spiritually that they're reading the work of the spirit as if it's mm-hmm. of Satan. Mm-hmm. That's what's going mm-hmm. on. They're so messed up, mm-hmm. and um, and so I think when you have somebody who is who is evidencing, I mean, it's heartbreaking because I get I get uh, notes from people. I have one guy who's contacted me multiple times, mm. and he's just he just so struggles because he's just mm. terrified that he's done something something that's going to to throw him off mm. uh, in terms of his relationship with God, and. Um, and and yet I think our hope is, and you know, all of us, all of us struggle, don't we, at yeah. times with a yeah. sense of assurance. But assurance, mm. assurance in Hebrews and in the New Testament generally is not by going back and trying to say, you know, was I sincere when I made this commitment? Uh, assurance in the New Testament is by endurance. Right. We endure in our right. trust in Christ. We endure in standing with the church. We endure in the gospel. And, it, and that's not a work. That's just a position in life. You know, that yeah. is, that's where we're uh, committed to being. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not a work for me to be faithful in my relationship with my wife, Pat. It's mm-hmm. not a work. Mm-hmm. It takes it takes a lot of work to mm. be to be a good, at, you know, to do a good job in marriage and all that kind of stuff, to love your spouse faithfully. But the, but the, the the relationship itself just is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You live yeah. embodied in that relationship and, and loving in that relationship. And, and uh, so anyway, I don't know. Mm. If that yeah, no, it does. No, that's, that's helpful. Mm. I mean, in Hebrews 12 talks about that too, of the throwing off everything that hinders you yeah. from following Christ. And so your goal is not, you know, you're not going back to that moment when you said the prayer or when you made the commitment, but your goal is Christ and you're throwing off everything that would hinder you mm-hmm. within that. Mm-hmm. And I is I mean, in Hebrews eight, it also talks about the the new covenant um, replacing the old one, the old one being obsolete. So were there things for the audience of Hebrews that they would have to like throw off or like think about differently? Like they're not going to the temple anymore. Are they going? They're not going to make sacrifices. Like, are there pieces at play here? Yeah, I mean. The thing that we have to think about when we when we think about something like moving from old covenant to new covenant uh, is continuity and discontinuity, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what aspects do we have here that are uh, aspects of continuity, and what are what are aspects of discontinuity? Um, boy, I mean, there's so much that we could talk about here. I, I think the most. Let me just kind of as an aside say that the most interesting moment in my teaching life in dealing with that passage was in Nazareth in Israel. And I was dealing with a group, half of whom were Arab pastors Mm. and half of whom were Jewish pastors. And interestingly, some of the Arabs, uh, a lot of the Arabs were um, holding to what, what we might call replacement theology, that the church has completely replaced Judaism and, you know, the old, you know, all of that. And then, but then there were some of the, the Arab pastors who were Zionists mm. 
And then on the Jewish side, you had different a mix of different ideas and views. Now you can imagine teaching this passage on moving from old to new covenant. Was, I mean, the dean, the dean uh, who had me there came to me and said, "Wow, we need to really be praying." And you know, it ended up being a beautiful, a beautiful time of discussion. And here's oh. here's my basic take on it. Um, I believe that all of the good things of of old covenant and the law and all that kind of stuff has been taken up and fulfilled in Christ in the new covenant. Mm. It's not, we're going to throw all this stuff away. So we start something new It's that all those things have been taken up into Christ in the new covenant and been transformed. Mm -hmm. Mm. And I think that, that we even, um, boy, this, this can get complicated, but uh, there is something even special about my Jewish friends who are Messianic Jews, who, who are believers mm. in Jesus. There's mm. something special about that because um, they have a unique place in the world historically. You know, we could say at least that. I mean, when you look at a Jewish person, you can say something about them that you can't say about me as a Gentile, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so I don't want to draw too many implications of that. But when you see, like I've seen my Jewish friends there, uh, the first time I taught Hebrews in Israel, um, we got to the end of the class and one of the sisters in the room said, uh, can we sing Ram Vanisa HaMashiach, which means high and exalted is the Messiah. Wow. And you had all of these Jewish believers standing around at the end of this class on Hebrews, lifting their hands and singing, you know, Ram Vanisa HaMashiach. And I was just weeping because, yeah. you know, you saw the fulfillment of what yeah. Hebrews was really talking about. Right. Really powerful. Now, there, there are weird theologies related to how all this gets fulfilled with the Jews and all that. We don't have time to go into all those questions. Mm-hmm. Don Lewis <laughs> could talk to us about that historically. And, yeah. You know, the problems of Zionism and all of this kind of kind of thing. But but whatever else you can say, you can say that there is a rich historical foundation and biblical scriptural foundation there mm-hmm. that is profoundly Jewish, right? So what Hebrews is not doing is saying, let's get rid of all that stuff so that we can move on to something new. Mm-hmm. No, all of that richness is taken up into mm-hmm. the new covenant in Christ. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why it's really important from a New Testament study standpoint to, to really, really, really get the Jewish orientation yeah. of a book like Hebrews. Because right. if you can't really get your head around what's going on here in terms of these Jewish forms of argument and theology, you'll never understand the book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt this wonderful conversation, but Claire Perini has something really important she'd like to share with you. Thanks, Nick. I do have something very important to say. Firstly, it's to say thank you to the number of people who listen to the podcast and they, they like the podcast so much that they send us emails to let us know or little donations of cashola. Mm. So um, so thank you for those who are who have been supporting the podcast. But if you've been listening to the podcast and you've been thinking, oh, I wonder how Nick gets paid. <laughs> no. <laughs> Cut, Cut that, that out. <laughs> <laughs> so if you've been listening to the podcast and you've appreciated some of the conversations that we've had, we would love you to to let Regent know by sending us an email or sending us a donation. And you can do that on the Regent College website if you go to rgnt.net forward slash give. That's R-G-N-T dot net forward slash give. What a great American, North American accent. Or like some sort of weird (laughs) 
hybrid <laughs> accent. Yeah. Uh, wonderful. And if you do give a donation, would you please tell them the podcast sent you? Thanks for listening and for your support. We hope you enjoy the rest of our conversation. Okay, George, I've got another question for you. Um, Hebrews 5.11, uh, milk and solid food. Talk to us about, talk to us about that. What's, what's, what's that all about? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is language that was very common, not only in rabbinic Judaism, but also in broader Greco-Roman world when education was being talked about. So you had uh, writers of the broader Greco-Roman world who would talk about their students as babies, uh, as being immature and therefore needing their mammy's milk rather than, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the solid food of mature people who had a developed sense of whatever, you know. So this is, this is very common language that the author is kind of playing off of. I think the author Hebrews actually had a very advanced education in the Greco-Roman world, which meant he had a, an advanced education in, in public speaking or rhetoric. Mm. Uh, so these, these images would have been common. He, he, in essence, starts off that passage by saying, you know, by this time, you guys ought to be teachers. You ought to be mature, but you need someone to teach you the ABCs of the faith, if I can say it that way. You know, right. there's one translation that actually translates it that way. We need to go back to the basics, in other words. Um, and, and he goes on and he says um, that solid food is for the mature. Uh, and then most of our translations say something like this, um, who by practice have had their senses trained to discern the difference between good and evil, something like that. Mm -hmm. The problem with that is uh, that word that often is translated as, praxis, as practice is a little Greek word, hexis. And there's no place in the ancient world that that word ever means practice. Oh. It never does. So, so many modern English translations get that wrong. Uh, there's a very important article in 1999 where a guy named John Lee, who's one of the leading lexicographers in the world, did a history of misinterpretation of that word. Mm -hmm. uh, what the word actually means, uh, it has to do with a state of existence of some, some kind. Like a, we, we think of a state of maturity. And that's really what he's talking about. So a better translation would be solid food is for the mature who, by virtue of their state of maturity, have senses that are trained to discern the difference between good and evil. Mm -hmm. So he's describing what a mature person looks like. Mm -hmm. There's someone who is discerning. Right. right. Uh, he's not saying go out there and practice being mature. He's saying, this is what you're like if you are mature. All right. right. But the whole, whole uh, milk and meat thing is just imagery that is describing um, the need for believers to go deeper in good, solid teaching as a foundation for their, their mature living of the faith. Yeah. So it's real easy for me to get excited about that because mm -hmm. that's what we do at Regent, hopefully. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what we want to continue growing and promoting in the churches yeah. that, that actually theology, good, sound study of the Bible, immersing ourselves in, in the word is foundational for right living. Yeah. And we want to be really careful not to draw a dichotomy between kind of right thinking and right living. We want to say that, no, these need to be integrated. Mm -hmm. uh, over and over again in Philippians, which I've, I've just uh, finished a commentary on, uh, Paul is challenging the Philippians to get their thoughts right as a foundation for getting mm. their lives right. Wow. 
Uh, in other words, people are not going to live well if they're not thinking well. Mm-hmm. So, so that's that's part of what Hebrews is doing. Practically, it says that in the church, we need to keep working on biblical literacy. We need to keep working on how we help people learn good, sound theology, but doing it in a way that's integrated with real life on the ground yeah. out there in the world mm. and not as kind of a disembodied topic right. that we're dealing with separate from, yeah. from real life. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's been, yeah, it's been a joy just to unpack this and uh, yeah, I'd love to in, in light of, you know, teaching others and uh, growing in this, what, what are you up to this summer, this upcoming year? Yeah, thank you. Thanks for asking, Nick. I um, I'm really excited <laughs> about the next six months because I have Tell a research what? leave. I have a research leave, um, and like here, a professor's uh, like just dream of joy. Yes. Oh, Feed me the books oh. and just their minds. And- just to be unencumbered by daily responsibilities. I love what yeah. I preach, and I really do. I mm. I so love interaction with students and teaching and all that. But it, it is wonderful to be able to pull aside every now and then and get renewed and, and kind of go really deep on reading and writing and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So about a month from now, um, my wife, Pat, and I are going to be going to Cambridge, England. We're going to be at, at Tyndall House in Cambridge throughout the fall and come back right after Christmas. Our kids, Lord willing, are actually going to come over and join us for Christmas in Cambridge. Oh, fun. It'll be really a lot of fun. Um, but... I have uh, primarily, I have some other smaller things, but I have primarily two books that I'm going to be doing during this time. Um, Mm. The first is a little book on uh, reading the Bible better. And uh, it's going to be called something like um, Sword, Rock, Lamp, and Fire or something like that. I I can't, I haven't got the exact title yet. Mm -hmm. Uh, No, I think it's, it's Sword, Rock, lamp and honey or something i i can't yeah. remember what it is but anyway it's something like that but but the main title is uh, a basic guide to reading the bible better it's only going to be about 75 or 100 pages mm. yeah and it's going to be a book that the publisher is going to sell in bulk where a church could buy 500 of them yeah. and give to all their church members it's right. meant to be a little book that is a very basic primer on how to read the Bible well. So I'll talk about Wonderful. context and other things like that. So, so I hope to get that done just in the next you know couple of months. And then the main book I'm working on is a theology of the book of Hebrews. Ooh, uh, it's going to be in, um, in a series that Zondervan has called a theology of the new Testament. And, um, and there's some really good volumes in that series. And so my job is to, is to write a theology of the book. It's actually going to give me a chance to read uh, a lot of the stuff, uh, the wonderful thing about Hebrews research is over the last 15 to 20 years, we've had a lot of just, just kind of an explosion of good, strong Hebrews research from mm-hmm. a lot of wonderful young scholars. Um, and I haven't been able to keep pace because so much has been going on. So mm. I'm going to be doing a lot of reading and trying to pull this together so pastors can have yeah. a good theological overview of the book. And I'm, I'm going to explore things, you know, that you would expect, like the person of God and the person of Christ and the high priesthood. But I'm also going to probe some things like uh, spatial movement in the book, because mm. you have this movement into the promised land. You have this movement mm. into yeah. the Holy of Holies. Uh, the falling away is the opposite of moving in. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to explore time. Mm. Uh, wow. 
because you've got some really cool things going on with the now and the not yet. And yeah. mm-hmm. Christ's sacrifice in Hebrews at the end of Hebrews 9 seems to uh, imply that Christ's sacrifice reaches all the way back to the beginning of time. Yeah. Right. Uh, and and there's some just interesting things there. So so that's the big project that I'm working mm-hmm. on. I hope to at least get the the research done and get a really strong start on writing. I don't think I'll get the whole thing written in the next mm-hmm. six months, but but I want to get uh, a huge amount of research done and a lot of writing done and then see where we are when we come back. So oh, that's that's the plan. We got we got many more podcast conversations to have <laughs> yes. on that, but then also we've we've Nick and I have got this lingering question about the Christology in Philippians. Okay, and so and how it compares to Hebrew. So oh, we have, that's well, for another podcast. Yeah, Not right now I would love to come back and talk about <laughs> Philippians. I would love it. I oh, it, it, just in a different way. I, I just that book is is just mind blowing. So I would yeah use podcast. Time. Another another we'll episode. You on. Once you're back from being with your books and it. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That sounds yeah. wonderful. George, thanks so much for thanks, all the George. time that you spent thinking about this and helping us understand it. We really appreciate it. Well, you guys it. are so much fun. I just, try. I just love doing this. So thank you for having me on. <laughs> We're glad to it. have you. <laughs> thanks for listening to the Regent College Podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. To discover more about Regent College, its upcoming events, conferences, courses, and more content like this, visit rgnt.net. That is rgnt.net.